Hello, my name is Chris Salter and welcome to the Junior Family Law Podcast. A collaboration between Burgess Salmon, Mills and Reeves and Newton Kearns. Over the next eight episodes, we'll be discussing a range of topics likely to be encountered by junior family lawyers. The podcasts are designed to be a practical and helpful discussion through a series of topics you may encounter as you start out in your family law career. I'm a solicitor at Burgess Salmon, having trained at the firm and qualified in September 2020. Today, I'm joined by Michael Finnegan, a two-year PQE solicitor at Burgess Salmon, and David Hickmott, a four-year PQE solicitor at Mills and Reeve. In this inaugural episode, we're going to be discussing Section 2.11 of 4Me in relation to business assets and directorships. Michael, do you want to tell us how we'll get to this stage and why would you be looking at completing Section 2.11 of 4Me? So for me is a detailed form setting out the financial details of the party who's completing it. So both parties uh, in divorce proceedings need to complete one of these usually. And it sets out the needs of the person completing it and their children. And both parties have detailed to provide full and frank disclosure throughout family proceedings. So the form is the usual way to do this. It can be exchanged voluntarily uh, before proceedings have been issued or as part of the court timetable. So it's part of the information gathering process, which is necessary before settlement negotiations can begin and basically gives a full overview of both parties' financial position. Okay, so we will slowly start to work our way through section 2.11 itself. If you want to follow this through, you should be able to download from a link near this podcast the page of for me which we're looking at. So the first box you'd want to fill in is the name of the business. So David, what can you tell us about this? It's the most obvious box, but there are still a few things to make sure you get right. Obviously, the first thing is make sure that you've spelled the name correctly and make sure that you've recorded the actual legal name. It's worth checking that on Companies House because some businesses will trade under a different name to that which they're registered under. So make sure that you've got that right. Um, There's other additional basic information that you should include, such as the company number uh, and in which jurisdiction the company is registered, that's going to be relevant if it's registered outside of England and Wales. And all of that ties in neatly into the nature of the business as well. I'll just talk very briefly about that. Again, you don't need to include a lot of information here. The company's house will give you the basic information, um, particularly if it's the other side's business. You just need to put a very brief description of what the company does. So if it's a trading company, what it's producing or marketing or selling, uh, note if it's an investment company or if it's a company holding property. Again, not a lot of detail needed. So just summarise it briefly. So the next box you'll see is a tick box, which asks to identify if you're a sole trader, partner in a partnership or shareholder in a limited company. Just going back to basics very quickly, a sole trader is an unincorporated company. So that could be the person who just owns a tea shop or has a very small business. So they have no separate legal personality. A partnership, you generally find farming partnerships. Again, they're not incorporated, so you won't be able to find details on Companies House. The one we're going to focus on mainly in this podcast and throughout the rest of the form is where you have someone who is a shareholder in a limited company. Limited companies are governed by the Companies Act and means that the company itself has a separate legal personality. 
That's why you'd be a shareholder. You own shares in the business rather than owning it itself. With it being registered, that's why you can go onto Companies House and find information such as the shareholdings and the annual returns. So we're going to move on. Once you've identified that you have a client who is a shareholder in a limited company, you need to understand their interests in the business. So Michael, how would you go about doing this? So when you go on to the company's house page for the relevant company, it will list the members in the company and will also give an idea of the percentage uh, share they have and whether they have a controlling share in the company. Um, also, the annual returns on the list of documents filed with Company House will give uh, an idea of who the shareholders are and what the, the share, ownership shares are. So an annual return is essentially a snapshot of a certain company at the anniversary uh, of their incorporation. Um, it's a separate document from the accounts and it details the shareholders, the directors, the address, all at the date of that document. So, Michael, when looking at the annual return, will the annual return tell you the percentage shareholding of of, of that person shareholding or will you need to work that out yourselves given the total number of shares and the shares which the individual client may hold? Uh, so when you look at the annual return it will have a number representing the overall shares and then the number of shares uh, owned by each of the members of the company so from that you can you can work out what share in the, the company that each of the shareholders owns. Okay great David have you got anything you'd like to add at this part? Just a couple of things to look out for one is whether you have corporate shareholders in the business. Depending on the type of business, the presence of a corporate shareholder might raise a flag of suspicion with the other side. So it's worthwhile just explaining what they do, why they're there. Um, and the other issue is minority shareholdings. If you own less than 50% of a business, then arguably you don't control it. You don't have the voting rights. And that might have an impact on your client's value of the business. So that's worth flagging up right at the beginning. That's going to be an issue. Um, and the final is just a reminder that when we say business interests, we don't mean directorships or businesses that you work for. Directorships should be listed separately because obviously you can be a director or an employer of a company or a business not have any actual interest in the underlying business. So the next box is to look at when your next set of accounts will be available. Um, companies which are incorporated are required to file annual accounts with Companies House. It is worth noting though the accounts generally run to a period, for example to the 31st of July, however they do take quite a long time to be prepared. So if a company's end of year is July, it may not be until, for example, February the following year before those accounts will be available. This is information you could obtain from the company accountant or just by speaking to your client to find out when those accounts may next be. Moving on to those company accounts, they are vital and need to be provided with the Form E. As you can see at the top, Form E helpfully tells you what documentation is required to be attached to this section. And at point A, it says copies of business accounts for the last two financial years. So Michael, do you want to talk about company accounts, where you might find them and what you should look out for in those accounts? Uh, so as uh, Chris has mentioned, you need to provide the last two years company accounts but that being said it, there may be some cases where in fact 
you feel that the last two years don't paint an accurate picture uh, of the company uh, because, for example, there might be special circumstances which might mean the company performed better than usual, but actually this isn't going to be the case going forward and you want to demonstrate this. So uh, it may be that you want to provide slightly more than that, but that will depend on, on the facts of the case. Um, when you get the accounts from companies' house, you might notice there are different types of accounts available. So there are abbreviated accounts, for example, which are a summarised version of the full accounts uh, and include the company balance sheet and a reduced number of notes and don't have the profit and loss account. There's micro-company accounts for smaller companies with a smaller turnover and less employees. Uh, there's full company accounts which have the, the profit and loss account and the balance sheet and detailed notes to the accountant. So these are the most useful when these are available uh, and have all the essential elements of the full accounts. And they also include uh, an accountant's report and a director's report, which give further important uh, information about the company. Uh, if possible, it's useful for, to obtain any of this information from a company accountant, because if there is an accountant, they're likely to know more about the accounts and can answer any questions you can have, which the client might not be able to answer. So if you can make contact with an accountant, then that's always a, a good plan. Uh, in terms of when the next accounts are due, uh, you can you can usually assume this based on, if you don't know for sure, you can usually assume this based on when the previous ones were prepared, as they tend to be done to the same period every year. Um, again, this might be a question for the accountant, it might be something they're working on, they might be able to give you some draft accounts, uh, that's often the case. In terms of what the accounts show, uh, there's important aspects on the accounts to look out for, which is things like the balance sheet, profit and loss accounts, as I mentioned, the shareholders funds. Um, the shareholders funds is, 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 is a good one to look at when looking at the interest your client has in that, in that company because it shows what their interest in the company actually is uh, and it's also important to know any dividends that the client might be receiving and if they change year on year, and if so, it might be worth explaining why they've changed. Um, with partnership accounts, for example, I'll uh, usually look at the drawings because often with, with these types of business with partnerships, uh, people can often meet some of their personal expenditure from those accounts, uh, so it's useful to, to look at too. It's also useful in that it can show trends in the business. Company accounts show the year they're accounting for and the previous year as well. So you can identify year on year whether the business is going in a positive or negative direction. As Michael explained, that may be another time where you'd want to look at previous sets of accounts to see if that trend continues. Before me also asks in this section if there's been any material change since the last accounts. Um, this could well be COVID or a similar situation which generally impacts the business world or for that individual business something may well have happened which is causing a negative or positive impact on their accounts. As accounts are only prepared annually the snapshot which you give may not be indicative of the current state of play of the business so here you'd want to explain in general terms if the business is doing particularly well or badly and give reasons as to why. It may also be that new competitors have entered the market or new products, which again could have a positive or negative impact on the business. Again, here, just a brief explanation of what they may be. The next box here looks at any sums owed to you by way of the business for the director's loan account. Here, you only want to reference money which is owed to your client. For example, a director's loan account could be where your client has sold a previous business for, let's say, £5 million and has invested that £5 million into the new business. 
Therefore, your client is owed that money from the business, which is reflected on his director's loan account. So that needs to be stated there as it's money which should be effectively taken out of the business because it's owned by your client. There is also what's known as a reverse director's loan account. This is where the balance is nil. So your client may have put no money into the business, so it's not owed anything, but has continued to draw money out of the business. If there is a reverse director's loan account, you do not want to include that here because Formy is only looking at cash and liquidity within the business. You should provide a schedule of your director's loan account with Formy, although there's no requirement for you to do so. It may preempt any questions which come up from the other side's solicitors after you've exchanged Formy. It's also really important to note that there could be tax consequences with director's loan account. Ultimately, DLAs are income, so they would be taxed at some point. There are also specific laws around how long money can stay outstanding on direct loan accounts before they are due. The next box on for me looks at the estimate of the current value of your business interest. David, how would you go about tackling this box? What you would put in this box uh, is partly dependent on the type of business that you have. For example, if it's a business that simply holds properties, you might be able to do a straight valuation of the underlying assets. Equally, if it's a consultancy business, for example, it may be that the value of the company is effectively zero because the value is in the work that the consultant is doing rather than the business itself. If you have a shareholding in a trading company, it becomes a lot more complex. It may be that you just want to say that a formal valuation is going to be needed further down the line. Valuing shareholdings can be really complicated and there are a few things to look out for in terms of just having a clear idea about value and having an idea about the kind of expert that you might be looking for. So think about if there have been any recent sales of other shares or offers to purchase the business that might give an indication as to value. So for example if you own 20% of the shares in a business and you know somebody else has just sold their 20% share and you know the value, that will give you a good indication about what your share is worth. Um, similarly, if you owned the whole business or you owned a majority share in the business and you were aware of an office offer in the last month or so to have the business purchased, again, that might be a really helpful indication. Valuations can also be based on revenue. So have a look at the kind of profit that's being generated year on year and how that's changing. It may be worth having a friendly accountant or a business valuer to act as a shadow expert. Uh, that is somebody who's not instructed on a joint basis, not an expert approved by the court, but is available to your client to answer questions and provide advice, which can be particularly useful if you're having to wade through a long detailed or complex valuation further down the line. So if it is going to be complex, it's likely that you will need a formal business evaluation. You will need an expert appointed by the court um, and a single joint expert is going to be necessary. David, that's, that's great and really interesting. Have you got any uh, stories you can give about when you've been trying to complete these sections yourself? Any good case studies you can, uh, you can mention? I think one of the challenges is persuading clients that 
business valuations are necessary. I think sometimes clients think that a business is simply the underlying assets or simply the cash that it has in the bank. Um, a good example and something I've dealt with recently is a consultancy business where the client is insistent that the company has no underlying value. That might be the case, but it's important for clients to understand that there are additional things to think about. So, for example, a company may have a client list, which is worth money. A company may have a degree of goodwill, which is associated with a brand name and brand recognition. Um, and that is the kind of thing that is intangible, but has a value to it. And it's important to make sure that clients realize this and realize that it's a complex question and that it may be money well spent to think about instructing experts or agreeing to instruct experts early in the process rather than becoming entrenched in this idea that a business is just what it has in the bank. And I would echo that and say that I've experienced similar issues in the past when trying to think for a value for this business because um, later on in this series there's going to be a podcast on appointing experts which will include the appointment of experts to value a business they will be looking at that point at the business as a going concern but you need to get to a stage first where you value all the parts of the business to help come up with the overall business value i've had situations in the past where businesses own property where they own fleets of vehicles or trademarks it may be the case that they also need to be valued separately before they can feed into an overall valuation of the business. It's many moving parts which all need to be pulled together when we're looking at value, which is why, as you said, David, it may not necessarily be the best place in for me to actually assign a value to a business. Michael, do you have anything you'd like to add at this stage? Going back to a few of the different things we've mentioned when talking through this section, it reminds me of a case I had some time ago where we had a company where the wife had put in uh, around 20 to 25 million um, most of which or nearly all of which was was property which was owned by the company the company as a whole how was was owned by her two daughters and they were the shareholders but in essence um, as we discussed with with directors loans accounts uh, this this money was owed to our clients but there was a company that had been set up as an investment company to benefit her daughters and enable them to inherit as tax efficiently as possible. So in reality, our client was never actually going to receive any of this money back. But on first glance, everything, there was a company in which she had put £20 million roughly into and was owed that amount back. So it was sort of, it had to be presented in such a way that the other side wouldn't see this and just think that was, you know, £20 million that was going to come back to her someday. But actually, um, to provide as much documentation um, as possible and liaise with the accountants and be able to present that in such a way that the other side could understand upon reading our form exactly what the purpose of the company was and why it had been set up and what's going to happen with it and the fact that our company and the fact that our client wasn't actually going to benefit from that company. That's really interesting and just following on from DLA and potential tax consequences Mike what would you put in the box about any capital gains tax that may be payable on the disposal of your business interest? Well, the tax is obviously something which is really important because we are looking to ascertain the net value uh, of the business or the net value of our client's interest in the business. There may be capital gains tax payable in the event of a sale. So if 
for example, you've got a very small business, then the allowance of £12,300 tax-free may be something that's relevant. Um, on top of this, it's useful to think about whether there are reliefs available. So, for example, business, business asset disposal relief, which was previously entrepreneur's relief, might be available, which would cut CGT to 10% as opposed to uh, 20% if the company qualifies. And there are also potentially other tax reliefs available to defer or reduce the tax. But this is obviously something that we would need to speak to an accountant about. So again, if there's a, a company accountant, we can speak to them and, and ask them for if they can put together a tax calculation in the event that the business were sold in six months or 12 months or now even, um, what the tax consequences would likely be. Uh, similarly, if, if an expert's provided a report, it might be that, that in the instructions to the expert, we've already asked them to provide an estimate of the tax that will be payable in the event of the sale of a business and if anything can be done to mitigate tax in the event of a sale. Um, so it's certainly something you would want to to preempt when you're instructing an expert. But yeah, as I say, otherwise an accountant is usually able to help with that kind of stuff. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's something which is sometimes overlooked or uh, TBC'd. Um, but it's something that's really important if you can get a, a tax figure in there. Okay, great. That's really interesting. And then that now leads us to the last box, which is the net value of your interest in any business after capital gains tax liability. So as you may have guessed, as you've listened through this podcast, our indication is that you may want to leave this box blank or, as Michael said, TBC. There are many issues which need to be identified before you want to assign a value to a business. And it may well be that experts need to be appointed before you can do so. If you do leave it blank or put TBC, I don't see a court criticising a solicitor for doing that, as there are many moving parts and it would be so difficult to tie down a value for a business, especially in a large limited company which could have multiple millions worth of turnover. Well, that brings us to the end of section 2.11 of For Me and the end of this first podcast in this series. Thank you very much for listening. As I said at the start, this will be a series of eight podcasts. Um, the other seven will follow over the next coming weeks and will continue to look at various sections of Form E. There will also be a podcast which will look at children issues, um, nuptial agreements and as we've alluded to throughout this podcast the instruction of experts thank you you've been listening to the junior family law podcast a collaboration between burgess salmon mills and reeve and newton kearns we look forward to you joining us on the next episode